This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, I'm Catherine Bliss, host of Pandemic Planet. My colleague, Steve Morrison, was in Germany recently to participate in the Munich Security Conference. This year, the conference featured a number of discussions and high-level sessions regarding health security in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Steve was able to sit down with several global health leaders to hear their current thinking regarding the trajectory of the pandemic and how we, as a global community, can be better prepared for outbreaks and health crises in the future. I hope you enjoy this episode in our Munich Security Conference mini-series, which can also be found on the CSIS podcast, Coronavirus Crisis Update. I'm delighted today to be joined again in conversation with Dr. John and Kinga Song. John, thank you so much for making time for us today. You're welcome. Always a pleasure to be on the program. Dr. Nkinga Zang is the founding director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Africa CDC. He has also been nominated by President Biden to lead the U.S., the president's PEPFAR program, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. That is in process right now. He is one of the world's leading virologists, nearly 30 years of experience, occupied senior positions at CDC is also one of the WHO Director General's Special Envoys on COVID-19 Preparedness and Response. We were together at the Munich Security Conference last week. There was a roundtable, health security roundtable, on Saturday. Dr. Nkengazong came in remotely. I was present at that. It was terrific to be together for that. I want to start, John, by asking you, why was it important to you to participate in the Munich Security Conference? You know, over the last six decades, it's a gathering committed to U.S., European, transatlantic security. Obviously, Ukraine dominated. But over the last several years, the last four or five years, many of us have worked very hard to build up a portfolio of health security programs and activities. I'd like your thoughts on why was it important for you to participate and what were the specific messages that you really wanted to impart to those who were gathered, we had 30 heads of state, 100 ministers, largely security and foreign policy, far less around health. Over to you, John. Thank you. No, thank you. As the theme of the Munich Conference, which is the, the security, in the last two years, we have seen how an outbreak of a disease can truly be a, a health security matter and also human security, as well as I'll even go as far as saying a national security threat. So it used to be hypothetical that a disease can actually run up to the level of other security threats, but we've now seen it very clearly that it is the case. 
Now, when you look at health security, I really wanted to be sure that in the other conference that I echo the need for us to look at security from a human perspective. That is what uh, diseases are doing for human security. And of course, uh, health security as a whole, because it also depends on whose security are we referring to as part of the global health security agenda. I think that is very, very important because that discussion has not been elevated enough. So I think that was really uh, something that I believe and felt strongly that words matter and it depends on also where you are sitting and using a certain word. I'm very pleased that others on that panel, including Minister Pandor, the Foreign Minister of South Africa and others echoed, took the same line of human security, health security and global health security. So say a bit about what you wanted to convey in terms of where things stand today with respect to Africa. You, we had both Yourself and South African Minister Naledi Pandor, as you indicated, we also had the new German health minister, Karl Lauterbach. We had Jeremy Farrar, head of Welcome Trust, Seth Berkeley from Gavi. It was a small gathering, but one of very prominent individuals, a lot of consideration around what the G7 should be doing under German presidency and leadership this year. So here we had this opportunity to really hear from you and Minister Pandor at this acute moment. Tell us, what was it that you wanted to most impress upon them in terms of where things stand in Africa? I really wanted to impress on them that what COVID has at least taught me, that we are more connected as humanity than we thought, that we are more vulnerable at the same time as humanity as we thought, regardless of where you are, and then that the inequities that we thought existed are more profound within countries, between countries, and between regions than we thought. So I think that was key because from that perspective, I really wanted to be sure that we emerged from that meeting recognizing that our overall health security, that is the global health security, will depend on a pathway where there is African health sovereignty and autonomy in addressing those health-related security commodities like vaccine manufacturing, diagnostic manufacturing, and therapeutic manufacturing. That is inevitably the pathway to which we are going to guarantee our collective security. That is the main message that I really wanted to deliver at the meeting. Yes. Did you come away from that conversation feeling hopeful about German leadership of the G7 this year? I came across with a feeling of a glass being half empty and half full. Yeah. It was half empty if you're sitting in Africa or in a resource-limited setting where you are struggling to get vaccines into arms. And the glass was half full if you are sitting in countries that have vaccinated in excess of 80% and in combination of natural infections, you feel like the pandemic is almost over. There was that sense of optimism that uh, the pandemic might be behind us and we should be thinking of the next pandemic. Whereas from the perspective and position that we see things in Africa, we still have to focus so much on the current pandemic. So I would say that it was half full and half empty glass. Yes, well, it was very clear that across Europe, across North America, there's been this murky transition that's opened up where people are feeling that this wall of immunity has been created, that Omicron's milder, that we're moving out of emergency into something that is more endemic and more managed, more seasonal and the like. And that's a bit dangerous in the sense that it may be premature. It doesn't take account of the possibility of new variants, but it also 
has the risk of walking away from those countries which in Africa and elsewhere, which are still struggling to overcome inequities and put the basic pieces in place. And there was a certain clear tension in saying, look, the opinion in the wealthier and most powerful countries seems to be moving in this other direction. No, absolutely. My concern with that thinking is that we begin to refer to COVID as a disease that will soon be in the past. And then, of course, because of that, it becomes one of the neglected tropical diseases where we now have to rely on foundations or charity to take care of that. We're moving on to other things there. We have to be humble that we've learned a lot from this disease. But there's a lot we have not learned from, and it continues to challenge us. The emergence of Omicron and the subvariant, the BA2 is a good example of what will continue to challenge our, our thinking there. So we should celebrate the progress that we've seen in the developed world, but be very, very cautious and humble that we don't know yet the full spectrum of this disease in terms of the pathogenesis. What other variants will emerge? What if a variant emerged that had the aggressivity and severity of Delta and then has the trans- transmissibility of the Omicron that will be in a very challenging situation. We've also seen how these variants, when they emerge, they challenge even the, those who have been vaccinated. So I think we should really realize that there's progress, but then approach that progress with caution, that we may not be celebrating victory so soon. Yes, thank you. You recently made a call for suspending much higher coordination of donations of vaccines to Africa, but also suspending till the third or fourth quarter those donations and to focus greater efforts on delivery capacity and logistics, things like healthcare workforce strength, uh, cold chain, vaccine sites, swabs, syringes, and also putting a much higher focus on overcoming vaccine hesitancy. Talk a little bit about this reset, this shift of strategy, how you're moving that forward and why at this moment in time. I'm a great believer in that we should always pose to evaluate where we are in a response and then make corrective actions going forward. If you look at where we are in the first quarter of 2022 with respect to access to vaccines, the vaccines arriving the continent in a more predictable manner. And there are more vaccines now in the country to the extent that anyone in Africa who wants to be vaccinated can actually walk down the street and get vaccinated. There are vaccines there. Just yesterday, we had a meeting with Nigeria, which I participated remotely. A lot of these global players were there. Tedros joined in by Zoom, where the Minister of Finance was saying the same thing, was saying that, look, we have a lot of vaccines in the country. Now, our problem is vaccination. Nigeria, for example, a country of about 210 million people, have now consumed 40% of their vaccines. So what I'm saying essentially is that let's not bring all vaccines into the first quarter as you create a scenario where you will not be able to consume the vaccine, the waste. Let's sequence it, okay, and say, look, we have a lot of vaccines in, the, in our warehouse now. Let's use the second quarter to vaccinate. And then we sequence that as another series of donations around the third and fourth quarter. That way we ensure that there's uptake, there's coverage, and there's no wastage, there's limited wastage. I think that is the recalibration of the strategy that we are proposing. Are you seeing progress in countries within Africa coming forward with far better national plans that begin to set the stage for how they're going to address these logistical requirements and other things, how they're going to address hesitancy, that you can then begin to jointly be able to coordinate and predict when receipt of vaccines is going and what volume is going to be best? We at the Africa CDC championing that cause as 
part of the instructions and recommendations that we got from the head of state just three weeks ago when they all met here in Addis Ababa and President Ramaphosa submitted a comprehensive report to his peers and they endorsed it about the need for the African Union and Africa CDC to coordinate those efforts in several areas with partners so that the vaccination effort is done as part of one country, one plan, okay, and one monitoring and evaluation there so that the left can understand what the right is doing, donor A understand what donor B is doing, and we can get to 70%. And progress is being made, Steve. I think when you look at the continental average, of which is now at 12.1% of those fully vaccinated, pack that a little bit, you see that there are now 14 countries that have vaccinated above 40% of the eligible population. Countries like South Africa around 41%, Tunisia 56%, Egypt 41%, etc. Et so I think we are beginning to see that if countries are well organized, show leadership, have one country plan and with the right partnerships, you can actually move the needle up rather quickly. I think, again, 14 out of 55 countries is not half, but at least it shows the points the needle in the right direction. That is what we should be doing. Effective partnership, effective coordination at country level. Thank you. What's going to work in your mind to take on the misinformation, the conspiracy theories, the hesitancy, the lack of trust and confidence in authorities in public health? I mean, we see that problem hugely here in the United States. It's something that we struggle with mightily, and I'm not sure we're coming up with great answers to it. I wanted to hear from you. What are you advising your partner governments about how to approach this problem that we really didn't fully understand or estimate? I think every good public health practice, as you and I know, is local. The concepts are global, but the practice itself is local, which means Africa must take its own sociocultural context and dwell with it and then find the touch points there. What are some of the touch points we are working with? And we have experimented some of that in, in some of these in countries. Working with religious leaders, it works magic. We, as part of the Saving Lives, Saving Livelihoods Initiative, that is a partnership with the Mastercard Foundation. We're working with religious leaders in Cameroon, Sierra Leone, South Sudan. And you really see an uptake, I mean, a remarkable uptake once they engage and they go to the pulpit and say, look, go out and get your vaccines, they are safe. Secondly, the youths. I mean, what we recognize, if you look at the population of the continent of Africa, it's a pyramid, as you know. There 60% to 70% of the population is less than 30 years old. And these are the group that really don't mind going out for vaccination. They feel that if they had COVID, they'll clear it off and whatever. So we have to bring them in as champions and as leaders. So in the coming weeks, you'll be hearing a vast initiative that Africa CDC is going to launch on targeting the youths and making the youth champion, ranging from musicians, important soccer athletes, and others in the community there. So we want them to own the problem. They are part of the problem. They should own the problem and also own the championship of the problems. That's great. Thank you. Good luck with all of that. Let's talk about your strategy. Where does test and treat fit into this? I mean, there's a lot of talk about post-Omicron, the need to, as antivirals come online and monoclonal antibodies, of course, the production and management of this, the production is going to take time. They have to be synced up with testing capacity and the like. How does that sit in your strategy? That is a very fundamental question. We have taken a position as the Africa CDC that we have to democratize testing and bring it into the communities and in the hands of individuals to the extent that an individual should be able to wake up in the morning and say, mm, I feel like I'm having COVID symptoms. I will do my swab testing, self-testing, and then decide to take my own personal responsibilities. That is the common understanding that that is the way to go in Africa. I'll tell you, 
something that happened three weeks ago here, where the head of state on 15 of January, they said to Africa CDC, should we meet in Addis Ababa physically for the annual summit? We said, yes, you can meet on condition that we test you every day and we take action. We did the testing for three days. We conducted about 11,000 tests. They had a COVID-free summit, okay, just by drive using testing as the cornerstone to bring people in and also extract people that became positive. And we agreed at that meeting that even if you are head of state or a minister and you were positive, Africa CDC will pull you out. And they agreed. Every day we tested them. Two ministers, foreign ministers were positive. We took them out. That is the power of frequent testing, isolating people, not giving them the sense that you are putting them in prison, but that you are taking them out, out for a while. They will resolve their, their COVID and then instead of transmitting it, they can actually move on with their lives. I think it worked so well that we are really pushing hard with um, the champion, under the championship of President Namaposa to democratize testing and make it available there. As new drugs become available, like Paxlovid, we should be able to make sure they're accessible. The only way that we are going to prevent that a new infection emerge in Africa and overwhelm the health system is to be sure that these drugs are accessible. So that if you have a virus like Omicron that spreads very quickly and becomes deadly like Delta and people go to the hospital, they can receive this treatment and go back home rather than overwhelm the hospital system. We see that clearly as a strategy to prepare for the arrival of the next variant if the next variant arrives and becomes more deadly. Tell me, in this, this evolving strategy that you're describing for us, where does the U.S. fit as a partner with Africa CDC and with the many different partner countries? I think the U.S. has become a very important partner in the fight against COVID on the continent through the, the vaccine delivery. The U.S. has donated over 600 million vaccines across the continent. We are now aware that the U.S. has launched the Global Vax, which is vaccination component of that, which is a great initiative. The other asset that the U.S. has is that it has the largest footprint on the continent for global health using the HIV programs that have been in place for, for close to 20 years. And if we really want to have early gains and early successes, those are the kind of platforms that we should use in delivery surveillance for this emergence of new variants, as well as a workforce that is required to actually provide some of the testing, delivery of vaccines, and also other supplies that may come in future, like the, the treatment. The test and treat has been the hallmark of HIV. So it's a question of borrowing from HIV to apply it to COVID. I'm very happy to hear that. I mean, there's been far too little discussion around how our U.S. investment in PEPFAR can be brought forward as a major component of the response in Africa. People are very excited at the prospect of you taking that leadership role at PEPFAR. Explain something for our listeners. Africa CDC has become a major factor, major force in the pandemic response and focus on preparedness. You have also the COVAX facility led by Gavi, along with WHO and CEPI. How do those two entities relate to one another, John? Africa CDC, through a continental similar mechanism covert that was established at the highest level, at the presidential level on the continent called AVAT, the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team, which is a mechanism to acquire vaccines for the continent, do work very closely with COVAX and coordinate very, very closely with COVAX. And I think that should be supported and actually promoted because it speaks to the power of regionalism, that global health needs can actually begin to be met at a regional level. And if we do that regionally well, then they will feed into the overall global needs, which is what we as a continent have observed over the last two years, that regional initiatives are critical for our overall global health security. So there's that close partnership between the COVAX and AVAD, and Africa CDC is part of that understanding. 
Now, in terms of vaccine delivery, uh, Africa CDC and COVAX, Gavi, also have a working group that discussing vaccination. We were together in Morocco when we brought 20 countries in Morocco to show them what Morocco has done. Gavi was there, COVAX and uh, UNICEF and WHO. We were together in Rwanda when we also convened a series of countries, African countries in Rwanda, to show them what Rwanda has done to achieve massive uptake of vaccination. So that is the kind of initial partnership that is required, where Africa CDC as a continental organization, knowing the right context, is working with Gavi or COVAX in Geneva, where they provide global oversight. I mean, global oversight in the sense that COVAX is not just for Africa. Africa. COVAX is for the whole world. And Africa CDC works in the region, has a mandate and political ownership of the highest leadership of the continent. I think that is a beautiful model that we should actually promote. Thank you. Now, at the recent heads of state meeting, the decision was taken to elevate the Africa CDC to become a public health agency with much greater authority, quick response capacity, autonomy, more agile, your position will be elevated to become a director general. Congratulations on that change. Can you provide just a little bit of comment on why that change now? You've been the founding director for five years now, and this seems to be a very significant and important step, but I'm not sure most people understand the background and the gravity of this decision. Absolutely. I think you characterize it so well as this remarkable turning point in the way that the disease respond and also public health is recognized on the continent. I think when the African head of state created Africa CDC in 2016, just after the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, it was a great vision out of great wisdom that they created that. But as any new structure, they took a wait and see. They said, we'll start you as a specialized technical institution of the African Union and then see how you, you flare with that. So Africa CDC started that with that structure and status. But over the last five years, they've seen the remarkable contribution that Africa CDC has brought to bear in terms of facilitating access, developing guidelines and policies, supporting member states very quickly. The key word is quickly. I mean, where Zambia says we need rapid responders today, Friday, by Monday or Tuesday, we have people in the field. I think they look at that and then they said, Hmm. We need to empower it to do to even be more agile. The key words there are autonomous health body of the continent, which is very different from the African Union jargons of having a specialized technical institution, which is embedded within uh, the commission. So I think that will give the next director uh, general uh, more powers. And the position has been elevated to almost the same rank of, as commissioners here, which gives you more access to the head of state. Another fundamental addition is that the head of states have now been directly added to the governance of Africa CDC. So the new director general will report directly to the head of states, which is a remarkable for a public health agency to have such visibility and access to the political leadership of the continent. Congratulations. It's a real testimony to your vision and leadership the last five years, and you should feel really great about that. A couple of quick issues that are big issues, but we want to touch on them before we run out of time. There's a lot underway in terms of trying to create distributed manufacturing capacity across Africa. We've heard a lot about what's happening in South Africa and Rwanda, Senegal, Morocco. Give us just a quick overview. How are things happening right now? What can we expect to unfold in 2022 and 2023? I think 2022 and early 2023, you begin to see more vaccine manufacturing in Africa, which is a truly a delight. 
when we start this movement on the 12th and 13th of April, just last year, we convened a summit on vaccine manufacturing where 40,000 participants took part at that summit, and including four head of states. We just didn't know how quickly at that momentum was going to prepare the continent. And today, you name them, all these countries are engaged. Morocco, the king has launched the largest manufacturing platform. I was in Marburg with the three head of states, President Nana Akufu Adu, President Paul Kagame, President Makisa, to really continue to move forward with the vaccine agenda. So in 2022, early 2023, you begin to see vaccine production on the continent. The key question now is how do we shape the market so that when vaccines are produced on the continent, the demand side is also strong. I think that is a discussion that we must all as public health experts and global health experts be looking at now very seriously. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about the war in Ukraine. We can't avoid this issue. Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, This is the largest military action in Europe in 77 years. It's a profound development. Obviously, this puts up in the air the question of Is this going to set back international efforts to advance the pandemic response and preparedness in Africa and elsewhere, in other low and middle income countries where there's still great inequities and great needs and great demand to move forward across the whole spectrum of things? What's your thought and how do we need to reset our thinking to take account of this profound development? I think it's so profound. If you recall, Steve, at the start of this conversation, I said that there are three things that have learned from this pandemic. The interconnectivity that we are as a world, the vulnerability that we are as a world, and of course, the inequities there. So the war in Ukraine means everything to everybody and must mean something to everybody because of the greater interconnectivity and vulnerabilities that we see. We saw during this COVID crisis how interrelated supply chain management was in the world. That way, even if you had the money, you didn't have access to supplies in the global north. It was difficult to have. So Africa is not immune to what is happening in, in Ukraine. I believe we are, as a global community, we are at intersection where we need to take very important discussion forward with respect to how do we recalibrate our global health architecture? And that cannot be done in isolation. I mean, recalibrating our global health architecture means we look at the global mechanisms that govern our health security. We look at regional mechanisms and national mechanisms. And all of that will be impacted definitely if the war in Ukraine continues for a while. The powers to be that will need to sit around the table and have this kind of fruitful discussions and discuss resources, allocation and support will actually be deviated and the focus will be in Ukraine. So I think that is my fear with respect to the impact on global health security as, as a whole. And lastly is that when you have instability or crisis, it breeds diseases. I mean, disease outbreaks occur frequently or people don't fight diseases. We're still in the middle of a pandemic, in, even in Ukraine and, of course, Russia. So I think by having that crisis there, it undermines the ability to effectively respond to even COVID-19. Yes. And it's important also to remind everyone, I think, that the great achievements of the naught decade, the creation of the Global Fund, creation of PEPFAR, Gavi grew out of geopolitical crisis. It grew out of the, against the background of the HIV pandemic, but also the aftermath of 9-11 and this acute sensitivity around fragile states and the role that infectious disease can play in destabilizing societies and states. And it helped rally people. You've mentioned how Africa CDC grew out of the crisis around Ebola in West Africa. So it's possible that 
people can begin to turn their attention to those things that build alliances, build sustainability and strength on a common threat around pathogenic threat and in, in infectious diseases, it's possible. We have precedents. We can move in that way. Say a word about China. We know that it's very important to the work of Africa CDC. It's a key global player in the pandemic response. We've done a lot of work at CSIS and our Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security, looking at how do we engage them productively in this period, while also continuing to insist on progress by the WHO investigation on COVID origin. What are the areas where we can see more cooperation in areas of common self-interest here? That is a very important question. The way we have to look at global health security is to look at a very simple model of what is it that we're looking at at global health security, which fundamentally has two elements. I mean, the ability to govern and develop policies that will enable cooperation, collaboration, cooperation and communication. That instrument is so powerful that requires that we all sit around the table and have mechanisms to talk to each other and share information and coordinate as much as possible. I think that is very, very fundamental, which means that we have to have all avenues open for engagement, communication, so that we understand some of the realities of what is undermining our humanity or what will undermine our humanity, such as the current COVID-19 pandemic we are dealing with. Remember, when COVID was identified in Wuhan, it took just less than two months for it to be in more than 70 countries, just less than two months. So that serious component of governance of global health security requires a serious cooperation with all the key parties around it. The second part of it, of course, is the response and response and preparedness, which is more the kind of structures that PEPFAR, the Global Fund and others have put in countries. Those kind of platforms will continue to require cooperation so that countries that are less resourced can benefit from all powers in the world to strengthen their ability. It is the ability to have those platforms strengthened that would drive those governance and policy issues clearly when we all sit around the table and try to listen to each other. Thank you. John, we ask each of our guests on this podcast series to close by telling us what gives you the greatest hope and optimism looking ahead. Uh, you're in the thick of this. You've had huge impact. You've really elevated the dynamism and the contributions of Africa CDC and push forward. What gives you now as you're looking ahead in this next phase, what gives you the greatest optimism and hope? I think there are two things that great optimism and hope. One is that extraordinary and historic engagement and ownership of the political leadership of the continent of Africa uh, to addressing this particular pandemic. We didn't see this early on in the HIV crisis until late, in around 2001, 2002, when head of states met in Abuja, Nigeria, to begin to discuss the HIV pandemic. But here we are in the start of a new disease, and Africa CDC, as young as he was, was asked to brief the head of states about 16 times. And that is remarkable. I stress on that because it becomes a platform that if you and I use it appropriately, you can use that platform to address other public health and global health diseases that will emerge in future. I think that is hope number one. Hope number two is technology and advancement. Imagine that within four weeks when the virus was identified in Wuhan, we knew the sequences and we were able to analyze that and develop diagnostics and it became the basis for the vaccine development. Uh, look at what uh, the continent of Africa has done in setting up the Pathogen Genomic Institute at Africa CDC that coordinates uh, uh, several laboratories and countries in Africa to generate uh, sequences that we now know is enabling us to understand variants are occurring on the continent. 
A few years ago, you would not have such a capacity in Africa. It would just be far-fetched to think of African countries analyzing the, I mean, the virus and understanding the distress. So that gives me hope that the science will continue to be our greatest ally in helping us to prepare for the next pandemic or to even to address this one. But it means we have to invest in it, at least on the continent, invest in science and development and in technology as well. Dr. John and King Zong. Director of the Africa CDC, John, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for joining us last weekend at the Munich Security Conference for the Health Security Roundtable. Thanks for all your leadership at Africa CDC, and we look forward to seeing you here in Washington heading up PEPFAR soon, and congratulations on that. We're really honored to have you with us here today. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be part of this program. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 